It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scar. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling. And his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hands to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raised him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross. Feeling forsaken by his father. Left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is a coming. Come on. Sunday is coming. Let's open the word tonight and let's read the story about that Friday that we celebrate tonight is Good Friday. Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 45 tonight. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earthquake and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. What I'd like to do tonight is I want to meditate on verse 46 with you tonight. There's, there's four things in verse 46 that I want us to just meditate on tonight. The first thing we're going to look at is the cry. The second thing is the word why. The third is the word my. And the fourth is the question as a whole. The cry points us to the fact of Jesus' death. The why uh, reveals the reason for his death. The my tells us the accomplishment of his death, and the question reveals the motive, why Jesus died, why he went to the cross. First, let's look at the cry tonight. The Bible says Jesus cried out. He cried out. Now, the word in the Greek is much more intense than simply crying out. The word in the Greek was more of a shriek, more of a yell, yell, more of an anguish. It was a cry that was vivid to the people that heard it. Matthew's writing the Gospel of Matthew in Greek to an audience that reads in Greek. But here, Matthew records this particular state, statement in the ancient Aramaic language, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Well, if you know anything about how they would authenticate historical documents back during this time period, they would, they would authenticate through eyewitnesses. And so there was something about the eyewitnesses that as they heard Jesus cry, this shriek, and I understand why many of the translators back down from uh, uh, really the intensity of this word, because no one really wants to put their religious founder in this light. And so when we talk about the cry here, it really points to the fact that Jesus did die. He did die. Even, you know, when you, if you study, you know, accounts from scholars and intellectuals, especially people who are very skeptical about the Bible uh, as a religious document, nobody disagrees that this actually happened. Why? Because nobody would put the founder of their religion in this type of position. Now, we understand what he was doing, but people who, who read this, it, you know, he sounds so despondent. He, he sounds in anguish. He sounds crying out this shriek, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I mean, you look at the words of Buddha on his deathbed or Muhammad on his deathbed. They were heroic words. They were poetic words. They were words nobody would ever put the founder of their religion in this light. And that's why even skeptics believe this had to have happened for Jesus to be in this position where he sounds like he's cracking under pressure. 
But the fact is, he did say this. And it was so riveting. And the eyewitnesses told it in such vivid detail that Matthew records this in the ancient Aramaic language, not just the translation of the Greek. And I hope you never forget that cry. I hope you understand this actually happened. Jesus Christ died. He hung on a cross. The actual son of God, born of a virgin, cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and gave up his spirit for you. So that's the first thing. The cry points us to the fact that Jesus actually died. Let's look at this word, why. Why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered, have you ever meditated on why did God do it? Why did God turn his back on his son? Why did God forsake Jesus? Well, the first thing I want you to understand about this statement, why God have you forsaken me, is that Jesus is actually quoting scripture. See, many of us forget that Jesus is not just crying something out. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, which tells us Jesus was completely lucid. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't cracking under pressure as many people thought. You know, many people look at this cry and think Jesus is losing his mind. He's cracking. It's the pain. It's the the intensity of the circumstances. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, Jesus was in the garden saying, Peter, don't cut this guy's ear off and healing people. And he knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And in this quote proves to us he knew exactly what was going on. He's quoting scripture. And what's so amazing about this psalm is if you read the book of Psalms, Psalms are a reflection of King David's life and other psalmists' life. You know, you read Psalm 51, David is writing about the death of his son. You know, different psalms are are really reflections of his life, good or bad. But let me ask the question, when did Psalm 22 ever happen in David's life? Let's look at some excerpts of this tonight. Uh, Verse 1 of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? All those who see me ridicule me. They they shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. When did that ever happen to David? I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. In my clothing they cast lots. Again, when did this ever happen in David's life? David's not just talking about sickness. David's not just talking about affliction or persecution. David's describing an execution. David's describing corporal punishment. And so when Jesus cried out this statement, Eli, Eli, lama sapachthani, the the people listening to him, surrounding him at the cross, they would have recognized this psalm. And what Jesus was doing is saying, listen, David was pointing at me. David is talking about me. Don't you see who I am? All of scripture points towards me. Look at verse 45 for a moment. It says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. 
darkness. What is what is darkness? Well, if you talk to an Old Testament scholar, they know exactly what darkness represents. Darkness represents judgment. It represents punishment. Look at Amos chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. Don't you love how when God fulfilled the Old Testament, he did it to the littlest detail? And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And look at this statement. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Darkness over the whole earth. A morning for an only son. John three sixteen. God gave his one and only son. This was a morning for an only son. Darkness covered the earth. Judgment. What does this mean? It means the whole earth was guilty. We are all guilty. We all deserve judgment. The entire human race. And, and you really won't understand what's going on until you understand that all of us are guilty. The entire human race is guilty. Not one of us are good enough. Not one of us can save ourselves. And the problem with this is in our modern culture, modern people resist this. Modern people have a really difficult time, especially here in North County. We have a difficult time swallowing this. Why? Because we live in a culture that teaches us you shouldn't feel guilty about anything. You live however you want to live. You do whatever you want to do. And don't let anyone make you feel bad. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty. Don't let anybody tell you what you're doing is right. You decide what's right for your life. You decide what's wrong. You, you live for yourself. You, you are your own person. You are your own God. We say in not so many words in our culture. And that's our culture. That's the problem of our culture. You know, after World War II, uh, American culture was racked with guilt. That's when psychoanalysts, uh, psychoanalytical, all that stuff became very popular in American society. But, you know, if you look at our culture today, there's no racked with guilt in our culture today. You wouldn't describe uh, America today as people being racked with guilt. We do everything in the open. There's no shame anymore. You watch television today. You watch reality shows today. You look in the news. There's no shame anymore. We don't, we don't feel guilty for our actions. We call them diseases. We don't want to take responsibility for our life. We'd rather develop a disease so we don't have responsibility anymore. That's America. There's no shame anymore. Uh, one of the cultural analysis of our culture today is Andrew Del Banco from Columbia University. And he's, he's a secular guy, but he's really brilliant when it comes to understanding American culture. And he wrote a book called The Real American Dream. And in the book, he, he basically is, is telling a story and doing some research on a book from Walter Percy from years ago. And it was a book, was, the title of the book was Love in the Ruins. And one of the stories in the book that he's commenting on is there was this psychologist, Max, who was dealing with a client, Tom. And Tom had just had an affair on his wife and had no guilt about it. And the psychologist, he, his whole philosophy, his whole psychological practice was... You really don't, you should not have the essence of guilt in your life. If you can remove guilt from your life, you, you can reach a plane of enlightenment. And so he's dealing with this client. He's trying to figure out what's the problem. You don't feel guilty. That's, that's the goal. That's where we want you to be. And he goes, no, that's what worries me, Tom says to him. 
what worries me is I don't feel guilt anymore. And what Del Banco was saying is that if there's no guilt, then there's nothing more important than you. Nothing transcends your life. Nothing, it, there's nothing to live for. Beyond, if there's no guilt, there's absolutely nothing to live for beyond yourself. You are the most important thing in your world. And so, of course, there's no reason to feel guilt. But the Bible tells us there is absolute truth. There is right and wrong. There is sin, and the wages of sin is death. So there is guilt, there is judgment, and there is punishment. See, that's what the why was all about. Why, God, have you forsaken me? God had to forsake him because this was punishment. This was an execution. Jesus was being punished for us. God had to turn his back on him. Because this was punishment. This was guilt. It was our guilt being paid for by Christ on the cross. So the why points to the reason of Jesus' death. The my points us to the accomplishment of his death. Let's look at the word my. See, the my shows us when Jesus says, my God, my God. We see perfect obedience. Jesus Perfectly obeying his father in the middle of infinite suffering. He is suffering beyond human comprehension, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And when he says the word my, we see perfect obedience in the sight of being rejected, in the sight of being abandoned, in the sight of being completely forsaken. Notice what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying, my hands, my hands, my my feet, my feet, my side, my head. He's not complaining about the physical pain here. He's not even saying, my friends, they've all left me, they've forsaken me, I'm here alone. He's not even crying out about the emotional pain. He's crying out about this spiritual separation he's feeling from the Father. See, what Jesus is experiencing is what many of us have felt from time to time in life here on earth to a small degree, he's experiencing rejected love. See, there's nothing that hurts worse than being rejected by somebody who is supposed to love you. Being rejected by a spouse, being rejected by a child, being rejected by a parent. And rejected love destroys us. It just tears us up. It eats us up inside and out. This this rejected love. I don't think we understand the intensity of Jesus' relationship with the Father. See, you have to understand, Jesus' soul and the Father's soul have literally been wrapped together for eternity. They they, they have been intertwined. They have been wrapped together for eternity. His love for the Father and the Father's love to Him makes the greatest marriage this world has ever seen look like a dewdrop in the face of the ocean. And so in this moment, Jesus is experiencing this separation from his father. And it is absolutely agonizing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the greatest pain we can ever experience. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says they will be punished with eternal destruction forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. 
See, the most painful aspect of hell is being separated from God. To live in exclusion from God. And what, what is happening here on the cross is Jesus wasn't just taking hell. He was taking hell for all of us. In that moment, he had the weight of all of our sin and all of mankind, past, present, and future in that moment on him. And he cries out, my God, my God. The word my is a very intimate term. He's not saying God has forsaken me. He's saying my God has forsaken me. You may not know my wife or or know my son, but if you hear me say my Amanda or my Asher, then you automatically assume that they must be an important person to me. My is a very intimate term. He lost my God. Not just God, he lost my God. He was robbed of the presence of his father for the first time in all of eternity. He's in this moment of separation, being completely forsaken and abandoned by his father. And yet the word my shows us his obedience. Let let me give a quick theology lesson tonight. When Jesus uses the phrase, my God, what he's doing is he's using covenant language. Because in the Old Testament, God says, if you will be my people, I will be your God and I will give you the right. When you go into a covenant relationship with God, he gives you the right to use the language, my God. Jesus is using covenant relationship. See, the the reality is if you give yourself to God and God to you, then you can say, my God. But the opposite was true for Jesus. Here's Jesus who perfectly obeyed his entire life, who did everything to please the Father. And yet, for his obedience, he receives rejection. He receives separation. He receives abandonment. But he still obeys. He still calls him, my God, my God. Jesus is here in the heart of hell. And from the heart of hell, he's crying out, I still love you, Father. You are still my God. That's perfect obedience. That even though he was abandoned by his father, he did not abandon his father. Even though he was forsaken by God, he did not let go of God. But he obeyed perfectly. That's why we say the gospel is two substitutions. It's two uh, imputations. Look, look at Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. We see these two substitutions. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the, that's the first substitution. Jesus became sin for you. God substituted his son in your place. And here's the second substitution. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that's what we talked about last night in communion. There's two elements to the cross. There's two elements in communion. One is the blood, the payment for our sin. One is the body, the righteousness that we now have, the healing, the life, the health, what God has given us. So many believers are only living with one substitution. And that's the problem. That's why so many Christians are weak and powerless because they understand that, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. You are forgiven. You are on your way to heaven. But the other substitution is you now have the righteousness of Christ. 
Think about it like this. Imagine being in jail and receiving a presidential pardon. You're now out of jail. You're now free. But then the president comes to you and not only am I going to pardon you, but I'm going to give you the Congressional Medal of Honor. See, that's what's happening here. Not only are we pardoned, but God is now giving us the Congressional Medal of Honor. Everything that Jesus earned on the cross, God now imputes that to us. We now are in Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. See, if I believe in Jesus Christ, then God treats me as if I did everything Jesus did. What did he do? My God, my God, Jesus obeyed perfectly. And so now God treats me as if I obeyed perfectly. One of my favorite TV shows is NCIS. And there was an episode years ago about there was an 80-year-old man and, and, and there was some Navy policemen MPs that were coming to arrest him these big old guys and they're and they're being really rough with him and they're arresting him and his friend was with him and his friend grabbed behind his tie and, and this this old man wore a congressional medal of honor that he earned in one of the wars earlier in his life and so his friend grabs behind the tie and he pulls out the medal and these two big old policemen that are arresting this man as soon as they see the medal they snap to attention and salute the medal See, they're saluting what this man earned. They're saluting what this medal represents. See, that's the second substitution. Not only did Christ pardon you, your sins are pardoned. But you now wear the medal around your neck of everything he earned on the cross. So the whole world salutes you. See, that's the beauty of being in Christ, the second substitution. Jesus just didn't die the death you should have died. He also obeyed perfectly. And now God treats you as if you... See, that's why you should never ask, am I good enough? Or does God love me? Or am I worthy? The only question that's important for those of us that are in Christ is, is Jesus good enough? Does God love Jesus? Is Jesus worthy? Because if Jesus is worthy, God treats you as if you did everything he did. That's what Corinthians 5 is all about. All the medals he earned is now on you. My God, my God shows us the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ so that you could receive everything he earned. And then the last thing I want to meditate on tonight is the question as a whole. This entire statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry points to the fact that Jesus Christ died. The why shows us why, the punishment. The my shows us the perfect obedience, what he accomplished for us. And the question as a whole shows us the motivation. What was his motivation? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do it? Why did he go through all of this? You know, the right answer, which is probably inadequate, is he did everything for the glory of God. Jesus did everything for the glory of God. But that answer is so inadequate because if you think about it, he was already bringing God glory in heaven. He was already faithfully serving his father in heaven. He, he was already giving God glory in heaven. So what did he have on earth that he didn't have in heaven? simply put, it was us. 
His motivation was us. Why did he go through all of this agony voluntarily? I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's on the cross. He's quoting scripture. He knows exactly what he's doing. See, the Father wanted us. That's why I love to say God does not want to be your religion. He wants to be your dad. God is building a family and he desperately wants you to be a part of it. And the son looked at his father one day. And he understood the father wanted us so bad that the son said, Dad, I'll do whatever it takes to bring them home. You know, the truth is, I didn't deserve it. The Bible tells me if I was the only person that Christ died for, he still would have died for me. I didn't deserve his death. But the father loved me so much that he allowed his son to be beaten, to hang on a cross, to experience the greatest form of suffering Jesus ever knew, which was being separated from his father. On my behalf, So I don't know where you're at tonight or what place you're in with God tonight, but you need to know the value of something is determined by how much somebody is willing to pay for it. You need to know tonight your value. You are worth the death of Jesus Christ. That's your value. That's how valuable you are to God. You're worth the death of Jesus Christ. That's incredible value. On your worst day, on the day you committed the deepest, darkest sin, the sin that you still struggle with, the sin that you feel like God can never forgive you for, on that day, you are worth the death of God's Son. And you need to understand tonight that His death was an overpayment for that sin. That's why you can walk with your head up See, what is a gospel self-esteem? A gospel self-esteem is where you can be incredibly bold and incredibly humble at the very same time. Humble because you know you're a sinner. Bold because you know how much God loves you and you know how much his death was an overpayment for you. His death was a complete overpayment for your life. And as we prepare to receive communion tonight... What is communion? Well, last night we talked about it's proclaiming the Lord's death. And one of the verses that really stood out, I'm just going to give you a quick review from last night. One of the verses that really stood out to me as I was studying this week on communion was 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30 says, That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died or died prematurely. That is why. Well, how many of you want to know what the that is? I mean, that's a pretty important verse, I would say. I definitely don't want that verse to apply to my life. And I don't know why we don't study this more. I mean, you see a verse like that, it's pretty shocking. That is why many are sick, many are weak, and many are dying prematurely. Well, I want to know what the that is. I want to know what the that is so that I can avoid that. Because I don't want that. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I want to avoid that. When you go back 
the verse before it says, verse 29, For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So what is the that? Receiving communion without honoring the body of Christ. Now I want to distinguish something here. Notice how Paul's not saying they're not honoring the cup. They're not honoring the blood. He's saying they're not honoring the body. Why? Because we all know what the blood is for. We all know what the blood is for. What is the blood for? Forgiveness of sins. What's the body for? See, this word honoring in the Greek is the word diakrinos. The word diakrinos means to distinguish between, to separate between, to prefer, to differentiate. That's what this word means. The reason they were taking this in an unworthy way, it says two verses earlier, they're receiving communion in an unworthy way. And many people have struggled with that verse for years. I used to struggle with that. I used to like let communion pass me right on by because I was afraid that I was unworthy. I was afraid there was a sin I forgot to confess. And if I took communion, I was going to get this judgment and this curse on me. I could get sick or die prematurely. So to be honest, I just skipped communion for many years. Paul's not talking about us being unworthy. We're all unworthy. There's not one worthy person. He's not talking about sin here. He's talking about the manner in which we receive communion. Well, what was unworthy about it? We were failing to diakrinos the Lord's body. We were failing to distinguish between, to differentiate the body from the blood. That's what they were doing here. And for that reason, that is why many people were sick. Many people. So what's the opposite of being sick, weak, and dying prematurely? Healthy, well, and long life. Plain and simple. Now, he doesn't say this is the reason why every person is sick. He's saying this is the reason why many people are sick. And you know what? I believe Paul. I believe God's word. I believe there are a lot of people in the church today who are probably sick and don't need to be for this very reason. Because they're failing to diakrinos. They're failing to differentiate between the blood and the cup. Or, excuse me, the body and the cup. And Paul is very clear. The issue isn't with the blood. The issue is with the body. Why? Because we all know what the blood is for, forgiveness. And the problem is what was happening here in the church of Corinth is what many of us do today. We were lumping the two together. We were receiving communion as one thing as opposed to two. What's the two things? Well, it was back what we talked about, the two imputations, the two substitutions. Isaiah 53 tells us what the body is for. By his stripes, we are healed. He carried our sickness. In the old King James, the Bible says he carried our infirmity and our iniquity on the cross. The blood deals with the iniquity. The body deals with your infirmities. I encourage you, listen to the message from last night when we get it up online so you can really hear what this means. The problem is they were failing to distinguish between the body and the blood. The blood deals with your... Jesus, when he hung on the cross, the Bible tells us he carried all of our infirmities, weaknesses, sicknesses, illness, and he carried all of our sin, our rebellion, our transgression. He carried them. He paid for both of them. They're both paid for. They're both paid for. If we fail to distinguish the body and the blood, we miss out on some of the benefits of what he paid for on the cross. And it's clear. It's clear. I want to know. I, I just want to make sure verse 30 doesn't apply to me. I, I want that that to not apply to me. 
And if it means discerning the Lord's body, then I want to know what the Lord's body is. Isaiah 53 tells us what the Lord's body was for. The body was for, by his stripes, we are healed. The blood was for forgiveness of sins. And so I want the ushers to pass out communion for us tonight. Somebody said, well, how can something as simple as communion release health, wellness, healing? Well, wasn't it something as simple as a bite of fruit that released the entire curse and sickness into the world in the first place? One bite of fruit. One bite of fruit released the entire curse on mankind. So it makes sense why God would institute something like communion. And let me clear something up, too, because I don't want anyone to leave believing God curses us. If you fail to discern the Lord's body and communion, God does not curse you with sickness. God will not curse you with sickness. What you need to understand, the world we live in is already cursed. We're all cursed. We're all decaying. It's called being human. We all have a terminal disease. We will all die eventually. Communion to me, when you, when you discern the Lord's body, when you understand what the Lord's body was given for, to me, it's very similar to tithing. You know, we, we say, you know, Malachi 3, bring all the tithe in the storehouse so that there'll be blessing. Don't rob God or you'll bring a curse on yourself. Again, God doesn't curse your finances if you fail to tithe. That's, that's a messed up theology. The world we live in is cursed. When we tithe... Tithing is a redemption principle. You redeem your income from the curse of the world that we live in. Discerning the Lord's body is the same thing. God doesn't curse you with sickness. God doesn't curse you. But when you discern the Lord's body, it's a redemption principle. When you truly understand that Jesus Christ paid for your iniquity and paid for your affirmity, according to Isaiah 53, when you truly recognize the difference between these two, the difference between the cup, the difference between the bread. It's just a gradual faith of recognizing Jesus Christ died for my health. He died for my healing. He died for my wellness. It's not a lottery ticket. So don't get some weird doctrine and make it legalistic and, you know. It's not a lottery ticket. But we're declaring the benefits of his death. When we receive communion... Paul said, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Proclaiming his death. He died for iniquity and he died for infirmity. He died for our sin. He died for our sickness. That's what the body and the cup represent. So as we receive communion tonight, let's recognize both of those. Let's not fail to discern the Lord's body. There were two separate acts. Jesus gave the bread. Jesus gave the cup. They were separate. He did not say they were both for the same thing. He, he, in fact, distinguished the cup. He said the cup is for the new covenant, grace, forgiveness of sins. I think the disciples understood what the body was for. When Jesus said, this is my body, they'd lived with him for three years. They never saw Jesus get sick. They never saw Jesus, you know, his physical body was different than theirs. They recognized that. So when he said, this is my body, I think they knew what it meant. 
I think they recognized his body was different from their body. On the night he was betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, tonight we don't want to receive communion in an unworthy manner and fail to discern, fail to diakrinos what your body was for. Isaiah 53 is very clear with us that your body, by your stripes, we are healed. That you carried our sickness, you carried our weaknesses, you carried our infirmities in your body when you hung on the cross. And we want to recognize that tonight. We want to acknowledge that tonight. We want to honor that tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross for us. Let's receive the body together. Same way he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood given for you, the new covenant, grace. The most beautiful thing about Christianity is grace. That's why many people don't know that when Christianity first came about, they called it an anti-religion. The Romans called Christians atheists for the first 200 years because what Christians said about God was so far-fetched to what every other religion said about God. Why? Because of grace. Because of grace. Grace is what sets apart Christianity from every other world religion. Because every world religion basically says the same thing. You work really hard, you you obey commandments, you obey a code, you live by dietary restrictions, and if you work really hard, God will accept you. Christianity says it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how hard you work. There's nothing you can do to earn it. God comes to you. Jesus came to us. That's why Christianity is so radically different from every other world religion. Because of the cup of grace because there's nothing we can do to earn it we just receive it father in the name of jesus we thank you for this cup that represents the blood that you shed the forgiveness of our sins the new covenant grace that we don't have to earn it we love you jesus we can't thank you enough stand here today righteous because of your blood everything you earned on the cross is now imputed upon us God now treats us as if we earned everything you earned because of grace because of your blood that was shed that washes us that cleanses us that makes us perfect in the sight of your father so we thank you let's take the cup together have the worship team close in one moment let me just say if you're here tonight you don't have a relationship with God you've never made a decision to put God first in your life I can't encourage you enough to make a decision tonight to say yes to Jesus Christ just to yourself say God as the band is singing tonight to yourself say God I need you I need you come into my life forgive me of my sins And then just say thank you. And if you pray that prayer tonight while the band is singing, I want you to come tell one of us. Tell one of our leaders. Tell your neighbor. Tell somebody that brought you. Tell a family member. Tell somebody tonight you invited Jesus Christ into your life. It's the greatest thing you can do on Good Friday. To honor his death is to receive him as Lord and Savior.